So this morning I picked another topic out of Sayadaw's teachings to elaborate on a little bit. <clears throat> and that's the topic of right view. <laughs> you can never get enough of right view, I think. At least not at this retreat. But anyway, uh, Sayadaw, over the course of both sitting in the hall and offering what he does, and also in the groups, he mentions right, the word right view many times, but then he often doesn't point out what it is he's telling you that is the right view. So I've collected a page worth <laughs> of things that uh, just, to, just to kind of help make, an, make it a little orderly for you to begin to understand what he's pointing to. <clears throat> but first I think I'd like to say that uh, Right view is only necessary because of delusion, because we, we don't see and we don't understand things correctly. And so, uh, as, as one of our other teachers used to say, you know, we, we live under the multiple layers of delusion. And so there are multiple layers of right view to peel away those layers of delusion. And, of course, right view has a prominent place in the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path being the first of the wisdom factors that is necessary for practicing uh, successfully. And Sariputta, the Buddha's, one of the Buddha's main disciples, when asked about right view, said there are two elements to right view. For the arising of right view in your own heart-mind, and the two elements are, you have to hear what right view is from someone else. And secondly, you have to develop wise attention. Well, so I can't come to right view by myself? You can come to some right views by yourself, yes. But the right view of liberation that the Buddha realized was was his distinctive gift to the world. So until we get there, we don't know. But let's just take it at that, that we're hearing a lot about right view, so all that's left for us is to develop wise attention. So the first right view about practice is, um, you know, did you ever ask yourself, why do you do this work? I'm sure. <laughs> why am I here, anyway? It's because we have the understanding that what we do with our life matters. And practice is kind of a, uh, an organized way of doing well with your life, gradually overcoming, suppressing, reducing, minimizing, uprooting unwholesome qualities of mind and cultivating, developing, and bringing to maturity the wholesome qualities of mind. It is possible. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't be here. And so that's one right view to keep in mind that, yes, we may be having a difficult time. We may be struggling. We may be experiencing a lot of unwholesomeness in our practice. But that's not the end. Because of practice, we can transform, trans, transcend, trans, trans. Uh, our mind. And so that's 
an understanding to keep in the mind that what we're experiencing now is not the way it's going to be forever. And the second, the corollary of that is the law of karma, having a right view of karma. You know, if we speak and act and think in a wholesome way, there will be pleasant results immediately and in the future. This is an important understanding because it helps us to understand why and how and what to do with all of the unpleasant experiences that inevitably come into view in practice. We have unpleasant physical experiences, unpleasant social experiences, unpleasant mental experiences. Why? Well, the law of karma suggests that unwholesomeness in the past is a primary contributing factor. And what we see when unpleasantness arises in our immediate experience is we don't like it. We get averse, we get whinging and whining and blame others and we just and that only adds fuel to the unpleasant fire. And so we get this opportunity again and again and again and again to find another way in the mind to deal with unpleasant phenomena instead of creating more unwholesome karma, practice encourages us to develop wholesome karma in relationship to unpleasant experiences. So rather than taking unpleasant experiences as a uh, kind of a, a feedback of how well you're doing, how well you aren't doing, we should always see it as, oh, here's an opportunity to find another way in the mind, to lay down a track in the mind for another way of dealing with unpleasantness. And to just try again and again and again and again, rather than resorting to aversion, to resort to awareness and increasingly understanding. And then the third preliminary um, right view in practice is to understand that uh, meditation is the work of the mind, as Sayadaw says. It's the work of the mind. It's not about posture at all. It's not about what you do with the body at all, other than to pay attention to it. It is mind work. And of course we have a body and so we, we have to take care of it and we have to feed it and bathe it and groom it and keep it comfortable and, and all of that. And we want to do that with, uh, without causing more suffering for ourselves. But the work of meditation and the work of suffering and liberating the mind is the work of the mind. That's the meditation. So that's the preliminary, even before you get to sitting on a cushion and looking at looking inside, those right views are supportive of practicing confidently and uh, correctly. Once we sit down and start paying attention, the meditation part itself is really looking at our own experience, the experience in this body and mind. We can't help but notice external phenomena, sight, sounds, other people, whatever. But primarily the work is getting familiar with the interior terrain. So we're working with our own mind and body. And the primary right view in doing this is to understand that in every moment something is being known. Basic right view. 
This is what we're looking at in practice. Something is arising, physical sensations, moods, mental states, emotions, thoughts, comments. Something is arising and it's being known. And if we can lay this track down in our mind as a way of understanding our practice, it will really be helpful. Because everything is something. Oh, that's really good. And, and if you know it's something, then it's being known. So it's not, it's not rocket science. It's just a way of articulating what is already happening, what we know. And the things that are known arise at one of the six sense doors. Sounds at the ear door, sights at the eye door, tastes at the tongue door, smells at the nose door, sensations at the body door, concepts and other mental phenomena at the mind door. Anything you experience, everything you experience, is an object. And when you experience it, it's being known. Practice isn't about knowing other objects. It's about being aware that objects are being known. And yes, we do We do a kind of a survey of what objects are being known, but the work of the mind is the knowing, is being aware that this is what's happening and understanding it this way. And as I mentioned the last time I spoke here, the... the, the ingredient or the the ingredients of the mind the five faculties are the the ingredients of the mindfulness soup the awareness soup uh, in the mind and we can work with any or all of the five faculties to uh, strengthen develop strengthen awareness which will uh, confirm in time the right views that we've heard but may or may not yet have uh, verified uh, experience of. Another term that Sayadaw uses a lot is nature. Actually, when he uses the word nature, it's just nature. You know, whatever you're experiencing is just nature. You know, whatever arises in the mind is just nature. Whatever arises in the body is just nature. He's talking about the view that everything that arises, every object, has its own nature. It has its own unique flavor in the mind. It has its own unique characteristics. For example, itching as a phenomena is very different sensation than pressure or heat. And as we pay attention to the variety of physical experiences, we catalog the known physical characteristics. And we mostly have a name for them. So too with the mind. Aversion feels very different in the mind than metta. Just feels very different. And what we're doing is, in paying attention to what is arising in each moment, we are, again, feeling and becoming intimately familiar with and being able to recognize the feelings of the mental phenomena that's arising in the mind. And to the extent that we're in touch with it, in paying 
wise attention, we'll begin to recognize it and have a word to put on it. The word is not so important. What's important is to get, to grok, as they say, the unique flavor of each of these mental and physical objects. When When we grok the nature of an experience, we taste its unique flavor. It's sabhava. Sayadaw talks about sabhava a lot. It's another way of talking about the nature of things. So that's one of the interior right views to have. And the second thing that Sayadaw talks a lot about is the chain of conditioning. He talks about natural process. It's a natural process. What's going on in the body? It's a natural process. What's going on in the mind? It's a natural process. Things arise in the mind because of a natural process. Practice itself is a natural process. The unfolding of insight is a natural process. What does he mean by natural process? Well, he means that things arise due to causes and conditions. And if we pay, and as we pay careful attention in our practice, we can see the chain of causation giving rise to different objects when they appear. I'll give you an example. We come in and we sit down. And we take our posture and we relax and we sit still and we pay attention. These are all conditions, right? Giving rise to an experience of sitting. And if you sit long enough and pay careful attention, pretty soon there's going to be some discomfort arise in the body somewhere. Why did that discomfort arise? Well, it arose because you're not moving and you're paying careful attention and you're noticing, oh, this is the nature of the body. There's discomfort there. When it arises, it automatically calls your attention. The arising of discomfort in the body conditions the attention going to it. Right? You, can't, you, can't, you can't not go to it. You can't stop it from going there. When it arises, you'll go there, or the attention will go there. When the attention goes there, it feels the discomfort. It feels the unpleasantness of that. Attention, along with other mental factors, feels what's going on there. When that feeling of unpleasantness arrives in the mind, it conditions or it activates a deeply conditioned habit of, I don't like it. Aversion. Every one of us has this this conditioned pattern of when unpleasantness or pain arises in the body, we feel the impulse, if not the full-blown experience of aversion. I don't like it. I want to get rid of it. I want to fix it. I blame somebody or something. And whatever form it takes, it's some form of aversion. That aversion itself is felt as mental unpleasantness. When there's mental unpleasantness in the mind, it conditions physical unpleasantness in the body. And so now we've got this feedback loop, you know, aversion conditioning more pain, pain conditioning more aversion, more aversion. And it's just, well, it'll just keep accelerating as long as you're paying careful attention until you turn to look at it and to understand it. But first, before you get the determination to sit and look at it, the intention arises to move, right? 
Why did the intention to move arise? Well, because of the pain, the unpleasantness, and the not liking it. And we know if we don't like pain in the body, move. Right? That's a that's a that's a deeply conditioned habit we've all got we all learned a long time ago. And it comes up multiple times a day. If we see that, we see that the intention to move arises. And if we're not paying too careful attention, we'll move. The intention conditions the movement, the movement conditions relief, relief conditions pleasantness, pleasantness conditions happy mind, we feel great. We didn't learn anything though. We didn't learn about that process because we didn't pay attention to it. So what we're doing is paying attention to the chain of causation giving rise to every one of those experiences I just talked about throughout the day. And there's a lot going on. So you, you, can, you can start anywhere and you'll see a chain of causation unfolding, giving rise to present moment and subsequent moments of experience. And the more you pay, you don't have to figure this out, let me just say. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to map it out. You don't have to draw a, a schematic diagram. You don't have to do anything like that. You just pay attention to moment-to-moment experience. As you do, it'll all fall into place and you'll see, oh, that's how it's happening. That's how I get entangled in this, that, or the other thing. And the main thing to look for in practice is unwise attention. Where we stop paying careful attention, you can be sure dukkha is going to follow quickly. So the chain of causation. Each each experience or object has its own unique flavor. There is an unfolding chain of causation giving rise to each of these appearances. So too with the mind. Why do different qualities of mind arise when they do? If we pay attention carefully, we'll see how mindfulness arises. We'll see how aversion arises. We'll see how doubt arises. And when we see them, it's not to say, I'm bad, I'm wrong, or when pleasant experiences, you know, calm, clear, joyful, you know, insightful, effortless energy, when that arises, not to say, hey, I'm doing good. It's to see these are the causes and conditions giving rise to that experience. When we understand the causes and conditions that give rise to experience, rather than grasping the experience, we can work on developing the causes and conditions. So that's a lot of right view before we even get to Vipassana. And Vipassana is the right view of the what are called the universal characteristics. The three characteristics of impermanence, dukkha, which Sayadaw uses a lot on this retreat, uses the word relentless, how experience is just relentless at coming at you. That's dukkha. And then the impersonal anatta experience or characteristic of phenomena. And these, one, as we open to and begin to see and understand that things are arising and passing away, they're impermanent. See that things are painful or unpleasant or relentless or oppressive, that's dukkha. Or they're impersonal, they're not under our immediate control, they just happen due to causes and conditions, that's the anatta experience. And these three insights or these three universal characteristics are the pathway to liberation. 
and vipassana is the refining or the development of more refined knowledge and understanding of these three characteristics up to and including the knowledge of the end of dukkha which is nibbana so that's what saida is talking about when he says right view Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.